Yeah, I can hear it. It sounds like really bad special effects on our part. Like we could we could download that sound effect and then put it in. But this is what practical effects gets oh, you. Boy, oh boy. Uh Pedro Boys hey, presents pa 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 Pedro Boys ah. Mudhorn Rakers. Proper. Mudhorn Rakers pilots. Might well it's like it's like uh, Star Trek the original series. They have like the original pilot, uh, like without William Shatner. No, they and don't. Aurora has like, yeah, they do. Really? And yeah, it's it's a different guy. I think he's a captain, and Ahura has like a different rank or something like that. There's like sl slight differences. So they tried to dem they they demoted like the her in the next one. You know what? I have so many questions. Separate podcast. And um, I'm not the one to ask. This is so like last week was like that where it ended up mostly being Mamarama as it should be. Yeah. It was long overdue. People we really did, liked it. You know. Did they? Okay. Yeah. Um, and so this is the proper like this is like the actual first episode, big premiere. You know, must see TV. But then when you buy the DVD, like last week's episode will be in a special feature says like oh original unheard pilot. Like they talk about the original unheard pilot of Game of Thrones with like a different Daenerys and yada yada. So, yeah, you know. yada yada. Um, this is this et cetera, one's canon. Et this what yeah, yeah well the last one was canon too because we yeah but it's a different canon. Po Boys is a fluid experiment that. Mm -hmm. Has its ups and downs. It's a multilateral, multinational corporate mega entity. Uh, often bridges on the experimental and transcendent. It's a corporeal look mm. into the inner workings of not only the human condition, but oh, leave me in the Star leave Wars galaxy writ large. Beautiful, Pete. Beautiful. I have something I want to talk about right off the bat. Okay. Speaking of human experience. Last night, I started reading The Power of Myth, which is um, a book-length dialogue with Joseph Campbell. Okay. Um, Joseph Campbell is up there with Akira Kurosawa in terms of names that get thrown around a lot when you talk about George Lucas's inspiration for Star Wars. And George Campbell is the comparative mythologist uh, whose work, um, Here with a Thousand Faces, I guess, is his big magnum opus. He works in comparative mythology and um, mythological archetypes and the hero's journey and these sorts of things. And his work was a big influence on George Lucas. Um, previously, as I said, Akira Kurosawa is another name you hear thrown around a lot. The Japanese director, Seven Samurai, Rashomon, things like that. Years ago, I, I finally, I was like, oh, I'm into Star Wars. Let me check out Akira Kurosawa. Ended up being a hugely fulfilling pursuit. Uh, mm -hmm. One that opened opened my palate up to world cinema. And I, I ended up watching, he's done like 30 movies. And over the course of a few years, I ended up watching them all. And they're fantastic. And I wrote his autobiography. Is is an excellent avenue to go down that has greatly enriched my uh, cultural appreciation of cinema and all sorts of things. So, of course, I thought, oh, Joe Campbell, Joseph Campbell. Everybody talks about Joseph Campbell. Yeah, people mythology. are talking about this him on the great. streets. Oh, yeah. yeah. And in uh, in these episodes that we're talking about, i got to think it was probably in the Legacy episode, but Joseph Campbell comes up 
uh, even in this discourse and their little uh, round table there. You hear Joseph Campbell thrown around a lot. Uh, Kurosawa is thrown in there too. I think there's a story about Bryce Dallas Howard meeting Kurosawa, but was like sleeping the whole time. Yeah, no big deal. (laughs) (laughs) A little humble brag. Yeah, yeah, real under the table there. Oh my gosh. Uh, So I I finally got around to reading um, some Joseph Campbell. I just want to, and I will say, the power of myth is a transcription of several lengthy conversations i guess some of which were actually held at lucasfilm really um during the during the 80s they were after La- after return of the jedi came out so this is not this is not a book he did not write this this is him in conversation so it is not necessarily as as clean as uh a book would be or, or prose would be um but i just i guess i wanted to share some of the insights i've gotten um i'm about 80 pages into a 250 page book here okay I'm just gonna. I want. I want to share wealth. I know maybe some of you are also curious about Joseph Campbell. Let's see here. Quote here. Hmm. When I was a kid, we wore short trousers. You know, knee pants. And then there was a great moment when you put on long pants. Oh my God. Boys now don't get that. I see even five-year-olds walking around with long trousers. <laughs> when are they going to know that they're now men? They must put aside childish things, and. As I read this, yes, I am wearing shorts. Thank you for asking. I'm wearing shorts, too, and I mean... Hey! <laughs> it's Poe Boys, not Poe Men. And it is Poe Bo- po Boys, and honestly, like, that rendition you just did was chilling because I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, my shorts as a child were above, you know, were below the knee. They looked awful. I can't look at a single childhood <laughs> picture because where are my knees? They're one of my, you know, top ten f- features of myself, my facade. I pretty much exclusively wore um, matching Thomas the Tank Engine themed sweatsuits. You know, helicopter on the sweatshirt, helicopter on the sweatpants, things like this. Yeah. Uh, I've got one more quote oh I want to share from All this. All right, I'll go on, go on. And then you can just scream when you've uh, had enough. Now back to the Great Seal. When you count the number of ranges on this pyramid, you find that there are 13. And when you come to the bottom, there's an inscription in Roman numerals. It is, of course, 1776. Then, when you add 1 and 7 and 7 and 6, you get 21, which is the age of reason, is it not? It was in 1776 that the 13 states Um. declared independence. The number 13... Is the number of transformation okay, and rebirth. Okay, stop. Okay. At the I'm last getting, I'm supper, getting, getting, there were 12 okay. apostles and one Christ. Okay, okay, Who is going okay. to die and be reborn. 13 is the number of getting out of the field of the bounds of 12 into the transcendent. You have the 12 signs of the zodiac and the sun. These men were very conscious of the number 13 as the number of resurrection and rebirth and new life. And they played it up here well done, all the Josh. way through. And well yes, done. this is a, a portion, four pages dedicated to the iconography of, can you guess it, Pete? The, the, the $1 bill. Okay. Um, I've been reading a lot lately. Yeah. This is the closest I've come to uh, throwing a book across the room. <laughs> now, for, for me, I, <laughs> I know that you really like physical books. Um, mm-hmm. you know, you like the, the, the texture supporting the books. I just like, uh, bending a paperback in half over itself. I just like burning it like a book a if I hate it. Anyway, <laughs> I read everything on my iPad. So, um, mm-hmm. 
for me, you know, I did that once and then I cracked it um, in a corner. So mm. I have learned my mm. lesson. Um, that was when I got to the novelization in um, Empire Strikes Back. And I'm like, what? I didn't see that coming. This is, bu- this is BS. Father sons wouldn't do that to each other. Um, Imperial Super Commando, what? They're not even naming all these characters. Deep cut. Um, speaking of books you mm. haven't done your episode nine rewatch right not for this week let me tell you i really don't want to so i'll, I'll give you a little a little glimpse okay oh good um, you're reading the novelization uh, the novelization this will be probably the last one before i finish the book um because i've been okay. i've been kind of slow rolling it um, mm-hmm. Which has been really nice. So you're just giving me a peek here, yeah. yeah you're, nothing you're, too crazy. You're saving that till you have it all. Um, yeah, right. uh, yeah. Okay, sure. I don't care. Sure, 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 sure. You, you, Your own discretion. Um, so listeners, this is the novelization episode nine. I've been reading it, and um, mm-hmm. two scenes, Josh. I don't know if this would have enhanced your watching of the movie now for the fifth, sixth time. If it had been in the movie, it might okay. have. Um, there's a, a chapter in the novelization where. Chewbacca and Kylo actually communicate. Yeah, does he go to him in the torture chamber? He goes to him in the torture chamber, and then yeah, he... Yeah, I don't know how they didn't do that in the well, movie. Well, based on... And I assume that Ray Carson was given, like, the script, and, like, a little... Oh, the author. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Was given the script, and then maybe a little bit of the production that's going on. Uh-huh. Um, so this is pretty, like, true to form, is what I imagine... Uh, what JJ wanted to do is um, Chewbacca's um, tied up and then Kylo Mm -hmm. um, like releases him with the force and is like, I killed Han Solo. You know, I can feel your hatred, blah, blah, blah. And he basically goads Chewbacca into trying to fight him. Chewbacca does not. Then he brings up the scavenger um, and then he senses, you know, because, you know, books have so much exposition, he senses how much Chewbacca loves Ray, and then mm-hmm. he starts taking that, um, and poking at it, then, um, he starts doing what he did to Poe, of going into his mind, but he starts mm-hmm. taking memories, and then... And Alden Ehrenreich shows up? And, um... Alden, no, 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 like flash. Um, specific, well, actually, the flashbacks are oh. young Chewbacca and him, and he remembers time. He's like sees memories of him calling Chewbacca Uncle Chewbacca. Um, mm-hmm. So that chapter shows that a Kylo knows that she's going to the Death Star because of that, which I think is pretty clear. Which may, that's uh, I'm that's interesting because that is again having watched this movie over and over again. When he confronts her in the skies over Kajimi mm-hmm. and she leaves, he tells Palpatine, I know where she's going. And you don't really have an idea of that. You just have to, you know, put it together. So, I mean, I will say in my, in my mind, I'm able to write it off as, well, there's two, you know, of these wayfinders. Mm-hmm. He is literally in cahoots with Palpatine. So it's it's not unreasonable. A, he would deduce one for Vader, one for Palpatine. The other one's probably where Palpatine was. Or B, Palpatine could have been like, yeah, mine's there. So, But yeah, okay, so this this provides another explanation for how he knows she's at the Death Star. And then a second thing is it shows how Rey is able to... Though 
Baka wouldn't know that because he got taken away for the dagger was translated. Um, he, she, yeah, I think she, he, he knows what the dagger's for. No, no. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, he was taken before it was translated, so he knows the dagger. He wouldn't know. Right. Yeah. And Kylo has the dagger. I don't know. I mean, whatever. Yeah. Um, or at least he knows the plan of what they're trying to do. Sure. Of finding the wayfinder. Um, the mm-hmm. second part is it then shows how Ray is able to sense Chewie because it's supposed to explain that like he's basically doing the torture as they're getting out of hyperspace. So uh, she feels his pain as opposed to in the movie. She's just like, oh, shit, he's alive. Or she looks really happy about how in pain he is. Yeah, so um, <laughs> she is like, holy, sh-, you know, oh, my gosh, like he's he's alive. Very, very excited. The only other thing that the book adds is there is an extra like scene or two with Lando where Lando explains like my kid was taken by the first order. Right. And this is basically his um, octo of, you know, just hanging out there waiting to die basically. So he's been there Mm -hmm. um, for a while. Whereas it, in the mm-hmm. movie, it makes it seem like he's like an agent or something. So right, right, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, curious. Yeah, and I mean, I, I hope that uh, there are some fans out there that are able to kind of bolster their viewership of the movie based on um, some of the, I guess, expository padding that the novelization offers. Um, for me, I can't, I can't quite reconcile the two the two don't really the two are not one to me the book is its own thing the movie is its own thing okay yeah you know the book can explain stuff away i'm not i uh i am not generous enough to apply that to the movie but it it sounds like there's um some interesting additions there and i guess we may as well just call this one book boys because uh while we're at it i mean (laughs) let's talk books (laughs) Um, so from the disappointment I have felt thus far with The Power of Myth by Joseph Campbell, which to be fair, I am still reading, uh, my intent truly, I'm rewatching Clone Wars, and I'm at the Mortis arc, which is the most mythological Clone yeah, right. Wars ever gets. And so my intent was, I'm going to burn through The Power of Myth, and then I'm going to watch Mortis. I don't know if I can wait that long. I'm hope to get through the book this weekend. We'll see. It's Friday when we're recording. So we'll, we'll see. Uh, so I'm a little, I, I feel a little disappointed now in that, boy, oh boy, do I have no patience for people adding up the numbers of the year. And also for a comparative mythologist, um, you would think that there's sort of a, a grander sense of things, but this book has a, this discourse he has with the interviewer is a lot of like kids today. And I, ugh, I, I kids mean, today. I mean, I've encountered it so much. Surely we're just doomed to feel that way one day. You and I, Pete, are apparently just going to become that. Kids today. I I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't understand Post Malone, but I don't begrudge him. Oh, we're Um, already, like, Post Malone is not, it's more of Travis Scott and Takashi 69 and then all these memes about Judge, do you have any? You can't play Travis Scott and Takashi 69 in the same, those are not the same people. Yeah, they're different people, but that's the right kind of. They're entirely different. Right, but in terms of what younger generation listen to, and their yeah. pop culture, 
Yeah. Are you saying that you're just a um, big Travis Scott fan? Is that is that why? Uh, no. I mean, I'm not overly familiar with either. I have actually listened to Travis Scott. I cannot bring myself to listen to Takeshi Six Nine. I'm not begrudgingly youth that. I'm not shaking my fist and being like the youth don't understand. The youth are fundamentally different. The youth are flawed. Not that Joseph Campbell necessarily does that, but there's a lot of old man on the porch sort of like kids today don't understand because of this. Uh, and you would think that a comparative mythologist whose life work is mm -hmm. looking at the whole of human experience from across space and time and finding the similarities uh, would be able to maybe figure out that kids in the mid-1980s aren't just like a damned and lost generation because they watch Rambo. But who knows? Oh, um, he, so he goes into the, the video games make people violent camp. I think it's too early for that, but boy, do they talk about Rambo a little bit. Um, just a little bit, but so from the disappointment of that, I backtracked you earlier in this week. Um, book, 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 boys. I think, I think over a year ago, this was announced. The art of Star Wars Rebels, and I love Star Wars Rebels so much, and I love Star Wars Animation and Dave Filoni and Killian Plunkett. And all these behind-the-scenes folks working on Clone Wars and Rebels and watching all the bonus features and Rebels Recon and hearing about the pre-production. Oh, please, give me more. So I was thrilled when they announced the Art of Rebels. It got delayed so many times. I believe this book was originally supposed to come out in November of last year. It got bumped to March, and then it got bumped oh, to May. I finally got my it. copy. And... Um, I read through it in about an hour, uh-huh, uh, and it bummed me out pretty hard. I got the super fancy duper deluxe edition that um, comes with like uh, a little lithographs of some of the sketches from Dave Filoni's sketchbook. Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, this is cool. I'm sure there's a lot of Dave sketches in this book. There's not, uh, and it does this when you open it. There's two lightsabers. They light up. Oh boy, um, boy, I've, uh, my Goodreads followers know, I've been, I, over the course of quarantine, I've read, <laughs> my uh, Goodreads followers, hey, <laughs> <laughs> hey, my mom, my sister, my girlfriend, <laughs> oh, my uh, scores and scores of Goodreads followers, <laughs> I might, I might have, no, I was going to say more Goodreads followers than podcast listeners, but I think they're both probably pretty abyssally low. Over the course of quarantine, though, I read, I talked about on the podcast, I read The Art of Rise of Skywalker. Mm -hmm. And I, I really do at this point have to say that the art of Star Wars books for the Disney era, Force Awakens, Rogue okay. One, etc., to my mind, really set the standard for books on film. And they provide a great gallery of concept art and pre-production art and and the development of these ideas from their rawest form to their final form, mm -hmm. which, you know, if you open the, if you open the art book for the force awakens, they're going to show you a dozen or more different ideas for what Kylo Ren could have been before. Oh, they that's really cool. Landed on what it finally was. Exactly. It is really cool. And that's what I've come to expect is more discourse and, and discussion with the creative people behind it and what they're thinking and their ideas. And, and don't, don't I don't care about what the ghost looks like because I know what the ghost looks like because I watched Star Wars Rebels 
which is why I'm buying a book about Star Wars Rebels. But uh, unfortunately for me, mm-hmm. the art of Star Wars Rebels is very much a book that, pardon me, I'm, I'm taking the book out again to look at it. Uh, it's a lot of just final versions of things. Uh-huh. Um, there's some great concept art showing, um, you know, cityscapes and things like that. There really is some fantastic artwork in here. And I would never um, detract from the artistic merits of, of the people working on it. Uh, but, you know, here, I am, you know, Darth Maul has uh, half of a page here. And it's just, you know, what he looks like in the show. Granted, it's it's rendered in, in art. You know, it's drawn. But it's just what he looks like in the show. Now, is this you know, a... I, um, was there any thought? Is this a Pablo Hidalgo creation or... No, no, it's not. It's not. Um, and, I mean, there's few, you know, like this page with Captain Rex. They've got, like, here he is with three different kinds of beard. Okay, you know. But, um, I don't know. I really just... There's not a lot of... You know, there's there's very few... There's, like, nothing in terms of an alternate take on the ghost. You know, the page on the ghost is just the ghost. Mm-hmm. There's a page where there's some different paint schemes. But, like, come on. You have more designs for the ghost than just the final ghost, surely. Um, and so I guess I was hoping for more process, okay. uh, whereas this is a very nice presentation, I'll, I'll give you, of the final designs and mm-hmm. what, um, what, what input there is from uh, the concept artists and the, the artists involved is, is very short, is often blurbs, one line here or there, um, not very in-depth. And so this is, you know, similar to I read The Art and Soul of Blade Runner 2049 a few weeks ago. And that felt very much like a book worth of back of the DVD kind of text. Sort of boasting, look how fancy this is. But it it never got too in-depth. And it felt like it was trying to sell me on the movie. But, like, I bought the book, man. (laughs) I watched the movie. Calm down. And it gets into this question of, like, who are these books for because i i feel like if i'm gonna spring to buy this book you know joe star wars fan or jane star wars fan is is not necessarily gonna buy the art of star wars rebels and i think if you're springing for that book you want more and you're more inclined to get more in depth and i feel like the book can be filed away with other making of books in film that similarly sort of just graze the surface and I just feel like if you're buying a making of book, you don't you want more than that. You know, I, I wish that the audience had been kept in mind a little more. Mm-hmm. I and I, I'll say that if you're thinking about getting the Art of Star Wars Rebels, definitely don't get the limited edition. <laughs> That's half your cost right there. I did it for you. You want you want get the regular one and then you turn on this episode, you open you know there you go. Get the regular edition, but I I would say I got so much more uh, insight into the making of Star Wars Rebels and the, even the concepts and the designs of Star Wars Rebels from watching Rebels Recon, which is a free YouTube show. Uh, it was just much more in depth and and an engaging process. So that was a pretty big bummer because I've been excited for this book for a very long time, and Star Wars art books have taught me, have trained me to to look at them as the benchmark for this type of literature mm-hmm. or you know book uh i will say this is i believe distributed by dark horse which is a, a comic book imprint as opposed to 
Um, the Art of Books for the Movies, which are um, by a book publisher. The name escapes me, and those books are downstairs, so I can't look at it right now. But, uh, yeah, I was pretty bummed. I mean, the, you know, the images are great, but I, I wanted a lot more insight. I wanted to go way, 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 way deeper. And there's huge omissions. I mean, there's nothing about the Inquisitor's TIE Fighter. There's nothing about Lando. I feel like these are pretty big things. And then, you know, oppositely, they're just like, this is the data spike, the USB drive that they use in that one episode. Look at, there's three versions of this. So I, I don't Don't they use that in um, the last episode of Clone Wars? No, the episode 11 to get into the medical bay. They might. Uh, the book mentions that it, a similar device shows up in The Mandalorian. So, who knows? But oh, I think yeah, yeah, yeah. they're talking about this book, and it's it's shortcomings as far as I'm concerned. Again, people might be people might just want to skim the surface with these books. Maybe you just want to look at pictures of that. You know, this might if you're if you're not looking to go that in depth, this might be more your thing than mm-hmm. mine. And I. I wanted to talk about that in particular, A, because it's a major event in my week, and B, because I think it dovetails nicely into us finally talking about this Disney Gallery uh, Mandalorian thing, because it is also a, a piece of, of making of stuff, and I've really enjoyed watching behind-the-scenes and making of featurettes for a long time. I mean, even, you know, since I was a kid, anything I could get on, you know, making a Star Wars, making of Jurassic Park, of Jaws. I had Jaws, Jurassic Park, and The Lost World each had these really uh, shiny two VHS sets, uh-huh. whereas the movie and then an entire other VHS tape just of, of bonus features and making of stuff. And I it, I really I really liked it. And so I've I've read and watched all kinds of making of movie things. I watched the bonus features on the Blu-ray, baby. I listen to director commentary. I'm all about this. And I, you know, so I was, I was very curious what kind of tone and what kind of show and what kind of series that this Disney gallery was going mm-hmm. to be. Uh, so, of course, the primary thing we're doing here is kind of disabusing viewers of all the nonsense Favreau is slinging because he's definitely kind of um, hawking a, a, a Favreau-centric narrative. That may be obfuscating the truth a whole bunch. And as insiders, we kind of know, well, actually. But I also want to talk about it in terms of um, making up stuff. Because going in, before I even watched the first episode, I was like, all right, let me put my head on. Because this this is either going to be very interesting or it's going to be unbearable. Because I think that Star Wars in particular, lately, not necessarily in their making ofs, but in... These little videos are doing on you know YouTube, your your Women's Day video, your May the Fourth video, kind of very grandiose, self-aggrandizing, you know, manipulative, emotionally manipulative kind of feeling videos that feel like they're really going to make you want to feel something. And uh, I think that this series little do they know Josh a lot of potential. I feel you know, nothing. Can't manipulate me. I have no emotions <laughs> uh, except anger. <laughs> Um, you know, but like, think, picture a making a video. Picture is just images of a guy behind a camera or a lady behind a camera or, you know, whoever in front of the camera, but you can see the camera, you know, and then picture the type of music you hear with that. And just from that, you can tell it sets a tone. 
I feel like the safe bet is Star Wars making up. Just throw Star Wars music in it. But like some of this stuff. If you if the the beginning of this most recent episode on the cast, which I think was a great episode, and to be fair, I I don't think that this show has fully leaned into the saccharine kind of uh, self-aggrandizing nonsense. It it goes there sometimes, but I don't think it's like that's the norm. But like the opening um, shots of of this most recent episode, episode three cast, the music for that would be appropriate playing over, you know, a Someone overcoming adversity. Um, but they play it and it's just like people shooting film. And I, uh, you know, it, it gives me a little queasy feeling. But I don't know. Well, let's, yeah, let's, so to, to, let's, to jump uh, off. Right through so, this I mean, basically, listeners, we're going to separate the fact from fiction. And we're, yeah. I mean, we're personal friends with a lot of these people. I mean, Pedro is a close, close friend. We've been mm-hmm. in multiple mm-hmm. um, Zoom happy hours with, um, you know, just people. All related to the cast. They're good yeah. people, all right? And they're giving their honest opinions, sharing, you know, just these touching stories. You know, we're going to talk about Dave mm-hmm. and how much of a sweetheart he is. Oh, the, we're going to talk the, about Dave in a big bad The big thing way. that we're doing with Mudhorn Rakers is we're going to be raking Johnny F. through the coals, all right? <laughs> <laughs> because he is just taking credit for all of these people just because he's at the table. All right? Like, mm-hmm. they're, and they're all like, oh, they're all like, soup. Johnny's so great. Johnny's so great. And it's because he's in charge of their paychecks. All right? They keep looking at him, and they're looking at him, <laughs> and he's like, yeah, make me look good. Yeah, make me look good. So um, that's kind of how we're going to phrase it. So this episode, we're talking about episodes one through three of Star Wars um Disney Gal- Gallery, The Mandalorian. Disney Gallery. <laughs> um, and we're going to talk about directing, legacy, and cast. Those are the three episodes. So do you want to backtrack yes. the cast, or do you want to start directing? Let's start directing, because I think directing offers an opportunity to sort of explain and, and show through doing what the purpose of this podcast is. For instance, just, you know, Mudhorn Raker, Josh here. There's a moment in directing where John Favreau is talking about how he assembled a dream team of directors. He put this dream team of directors together. Deborah Chow, um, Rick Fumiawa, I apologize if I mispronounced that, um, Dave Filoni, uh, Taika Waititi, Bryce Dallas Howard, um, to, you know, he's like, oh, dirty dozen of, of directors, or yeah, 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 yeah. First off, he did not put that team together. He literally looked at our guest list for a dinner party we were having, and just took it. Mm. And I don't even know how he got it. Probably one of these data spikes we were talking about. But he's like, oh, I played the game. No, you didn't. No, you, didn't. you just looked at the invitation for our Life Day little dinner that we were having. Our Life Day in July dinner party that we were having. And you just, hmm, drives me crazy. But perfect example. Um, in that first episode, John Favreau says, I like hiring smart people. Mudhorn Raker Josh here. It's actually not true. John Favreau actually likes hiring very dumb people. That's true. Can't can confirm. So right there. Thank yes. So you know, just know when you're watching that first episode, and he says, "Well, I actually like hiring smart people." He actually doesn't. He actually does like hiring people who are actually very dumb. And he, not to say that any of the directors are dumb, because no, no, no. But he didn't hire them. He poached them from our guest list. Yeah. Uh, These directors are our friends. 
they're they're people we put he we they're our friends we've curated we like what they Mm -hmm. produce um we've had personal stories with them you know um we've done some table reads on different projects and we've Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. helped them move around in the um Koei lacrosse team. The lacrosse team, you know, play, play a little mm-hmm. bit of lax with Taika and Rick. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, we're in a couple book clubs with um, sure. Deb and Bryce and Dave. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it's just a little, I mean, I'm going to let it slide um, <laughs> because it's not about us. It's about these great directors and what they're. Yes, and I am thrilled for my friends. And what they're bringing to this, and the fact that they're getting, um, yeah. you know, their time to shine. I would say, hey, Star Wars, um, you gave Deb her own show. All right, Dave's doing well. He's gonna have his next cartoon. Oh. He's gonna continue with the Mandalorian. Why don't we get Rick something? All right, would it kill you mm-hmm. to throw Bryce some work too? Huh? Mm-hmm. And this is just, just how nasty. Just how nasty John Favreau is. Because it's one of these things where I love Star Wars and I love my friends. I love my friends, Debbie and, and Bryce and Dave and Rick and Taika. I love my friends and I love Star Wars. And so seeing them together, I'm like, oh, perfect. Dream team. Perfect. I love that my friends are working on Star Wars. But John's like, oh, but I actually did it. And it's one of these things where it's just a horrible, horrible monkey paw situation. Where, you know, be careful what you wish for. And, you know, the ends to these means or whichever. And it's just such a nasty thing. If you want to see a real life elephant in the room, watch this. Mm -hmm. Okay? He's always on the right hand side. (laughs) And Dave is always looking to him so he doesn't get squashed. All right? So, (laughs) to talk about what we do like, um, I mean, people are talking, I've been talking about this on Twitter for weeks. Um, about mm-hmm. um, this and the directing episode, it's when Dave shares how he got hired, which I, I, boy, was oh boy. one of the more endearing um, and just <laughs> so, so much fun of how yeah these these two go ahead of how he when he was working at Last Airbender was getting picked on by the SpongeBob guys like I just <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he thought the SpongeBob guys were prank calling him with a job offer from Lucas Animation. It just imagine—it's what I imagine. It's like I don't know the robotics team messing with like the model UN team of the, the AV the club. AV club. Yeah. <laughs> hey, is your robot running? <laughs> um, I mean, it's just so endearing how Dave was just mm. so resigned to being made fun of by the SpongeBob guys. Where he's like, yeah, yeah. sure, Lucasfilm. And it, so it's such a great story. And I can listen to Dave Filoni talk for days and often do. Uh, you know, in my, I have a sense depth tank and I just pump in Filoni interviews with only his side of the conversation going. And I just float there for, for days and I prune and listen to Dave. Uh, the, he really gets a, Big spotlight in both of these first two episodes, largely because of the people at the table. He's the one who's worked with George Lucas um, the most. And, you know, is, is they are apparent to George Lucas's understanding of Star Wars and things like this. But 
the SpongeBob story is so funny on the one hand, but I also found that it just riddled me with anxiety. Because uh-huh. I love Clone Wars so much, and I have perhaps at length previously talked about just like how big an influence on me Clone Wars was and how it shaped um you know my understanding of storytelling uh-huh. and things like this and it's just like such a big presence in my creative life that the idea that this thing that I like so much at one moment really really teetered on the brink of these freaking SpongeBob goons <laughs> And that there's a chance that in some alternate universe, Dave was just like, you know what, Spongebob, I've had enough of this! And never got that interview. And it's just like, right on the edge of going one way or the other. Oh man, just riddled me with anxiety. Whereas, Dave also has a very big moment, and yes, it did go viral, I would say, in the second episode, Legacy, where he talks about Phantom Menace, he talks about Duel of the Fates, uh, and he says some things that I'm just saying, I know these are things that I have said at length to my girlfriend about Duel of the Fates and <laughs> what the Duel of Fates is and what it means for Anakin and why it's important and blah, uh-huh. blah, blah. And my girlfriend and I were watching it together and he starts talking about Duel of Fates and I get my classic, I'm excited watching a movie. So I put my fists up and curl my knees into my body so that I'm ready to punch and kick at the same time. And I just starts screaming tell him dave tell him <laughs> and then pointing at the screen and looking anxiously at my girlfriend and saying, oh, oh, yeah! Oh, yeah! Uh, i was on cloud nine for that that was very exciting and my girlfriend begrudgingly patted me on the head and said okay good job good job i would i would like to say for whatever it's worth um, John Williams' score for The Phantom Menace and the fact that that track is called Duel of the Fates is something that led me down a similar line of, of thinking. And I've said before that John Williams' score for the prequels has really um, helped me think about the prequels and how I think about them. And, you know, but what a monologue he goes on there. And it's just... it. It's also interesting because I, I got to imagine, you know, coming so close to the finale of The Clone Wars uh-huh. and that, that ending of The Clone Wars being something that's sort of nebulous or you know it's very quiet and understated and just like 20 years from now you know maybe we'll be watching the next rising star at at lucasfilm dissecting dave's work and um they they really talk about uh kind of george lucas and his legacy and i think giving dave a shot to speak there is the most important thing they could do to sort of showcase the george lucas legacy because as much as star wars is George Lucas, it's also who George Lucas worked with. You know, George Lucas has the idea for Boba Fett, but it's Ralph McQuarrie that comes up, or not Ralph McQuarrie, sorry, Joe Johnson and Ralph McQuarrie, I guess, who come up with the sketches for Boba Fett, you know, who come up with the designs for the AT-AT, for the X-Wing, for things like this. You know, it's it's Ben Burtt that comes up with the sounds of R2-D2. And as much as George Lucas' strength is the mythology that he developed, it's also the team that he yeah, surrounds I mean, himself he, he's with. A great he man- he's a great manager. Talent of talent yeah yeah and i think that's that's personified in dave filoni who he you know he's got an eye for these these inspiring and inspired creative people that he gives a platform and the other directors uh and i think dave showed that with his insight and other directors talk to him with this reverence of you know he is the authority and just not, not just that of like he understands what belongs and what doesn't belong 
So, like, I think yeah. Deborah Chow talks about, like, he knows what the vision should be, and he's such a useful tool. And all of them talk mm-hmm. about talk to him as, like, such this, this important person that helps them, you know, ground themselves in the universe itself. Because all of them, in one way or another, talk about what Star Wars meant to them. I think Rick um, shared a personal story about... Um, having the action figures and acting scenes out as a kid. And I think Taika did that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. just to have that tool and just, you know, fans do it all the time, you know, just fanboy over Dave. But seeing, like, industry people kind of recognize him is super, super cool. Um, which brings me to a negative point of um, oh. you can just see... Johnny F in the background, how Ugh. he is just so jealous of uh, of I'm Dave. The big deal. It's me. This, I I I told Dave about Duel of the Fates. There's a scene yeah. where they're looking right. at stormtrooper helmets, and then Dave brings <laughs> up this you know point about how you have it from C3PO's perspective of you see his head, and then everybody's running, and then Dave John's like, "That's a deep cut. I don't know that one." And I'm like. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> some reference to empire yeah Strikes and you back. know i mean here's a little behind the scenes documentaries are not natural all right you'll do the same thing over a couple times all right um right. they're projecting an image so that's the best of mm-hmm. the particularly johnny f who does come from acting that's the best that they could have done of johnny f so you know that johnny f said just some horrid horrid stuff Oh, that was belittling. Yeah, that yeah. it was like, oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Why are you making me look stupid in front of all of these cameras? Um, so, yeah. just a professional. And Johnny F is really one of these guys who, like, Johnny F knows Dave could beat him up. But it's so clear, like, when he's on camera, he's like, I know Dave won't beat me up in front of the camera. So he gets all, oh, I don't know. That's a deep cut, nerd. But, like, Dave could take him. Yeah. And, but Dave's a class act, so he. Under, he, oh, he, he wouldn't. Yeah, wanted. Dave wouldn't. Yeah. Um. So, mm-hmm. the it was really nice getting some beats about all the directors. I think my favorite thing about this whole thing is, as I'm watching it, it reinvigorates my interest in some part of the Mandalorian or Star Wars. So like after watching Episode yes, Two and the Duel of the Fates comment, I re I rewatched Phantom mm-hmm. Menace, and yeah. Oh, did you nice? And um. I kept being like, I'm watching the Boonta Eve classic, and my parents were like, what the hell are you talking about? Yes. And I'm like, hold on for the Boonta Eve classic. And they're like, that's Star Wars. And I'm like, no, it's the Boonta Eve classic. Um, and then um, the song Jawa's Attack, um, which is the episode mm-hmm. two. It's the music where the Mandalorian's chasing the Sandcrawler. I just love it so much. Yeah. Um, I've listened... Yeah, that epi- the soundtrack for episode two is definitely a, a personal favorite. I just I, I pick up like my pace. I like hit my treadmill um, so much faster when I'm like when I'm when I'm there because it 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 takes you. I'm just so excited. And I just picture myself like get back here, Sandcrawler. All right, that's all my stuff. Um, <laughs> which has just been like one of the the big joys of watching all of this. Um, yeah. So- yeah, it re- definitely reinvigorated my interest in it as well. And I'll say, uh, just today, earlier this morning, I went for for a kind of a lengthier walk outside just to I don't know, 
stretch my legs and be sane. And um, over the past few years, I've really leaned into the Blade Runner 2049 soundtrack. It's kind of my go-to at conventions where, you know, you're inside surrounded by people and I'll just pop in my, my earbuds and listen to that soundtrack, that score. And it, it's it's just something else, man, being surrounded all those people and just hearing that music is something else. But I got to say, that Mandalorian soundtrack, um, something about Ludwig Gordonson's instrumentation and the, and the sounds he uses, uh, at times it gets a little intense, but it's, it's really good for open spaces and being outside and uh, avoiding people and seeing trees and things like this. And I, I, I listened to the... The scores for episodes seven and eight while I was walking around today. And yeah, some really inspired stuff. And I mean, that's, I, I, I'm not, as, as, um, you might be aware, listeners, I mean, Josh knows this. I'm not a person that does behind the scenes. Like, um, I don't watch the deleted scenes, I don't watch the commentary cast, um, for different movies. Um, so it says something for me at least to be as, um, into, the story getting this background it does say something it says you have a podcast and you're desperate for content oh listeners just you wait until until june (laughs) oh oh just wait oh just wait Um, so let's get into episode two which is legacy um okay the we we've already talked about i mean for me there's two highlights um the one was the Mm -hmm. dave duel the fates which we already talked about and then the second one is just the fanboy legacy over George Lucas. And that yeah. in that yeah. episode we had oh my gosh, what I'm I know there's Kathleen, Johnny F and Dave, and then we had a couple other people uh, on there. Gary Witta, I believe, is uh-huh. there. And I didn't I the other I'm I'm a big enough dork that I knew Gary Witta by by uh-huh. looking at him. I didn't need to be introduced to him, but I didn't recognize um, the the other two folks at the table. Okay, um, let's see. And I'm actually, I think, wrong, and it wasn't Gary Wooda, so... Yeah, and this... <laughs> Gary Wooda um, Well, according else. to Wikipedia, they also had no idea, because um, under crew, they listed 35 people. Um, <laughs> so... Who am I referring to? I'm talking about the guy who... John, John Noel. Noel, okay. Yeah, John Knoll. And John Knoll is actually the guy who pitched the... Okay, now I know how I confuse it. Gary Wooda and John Knoll pitched the story for Rogue One. But yeah, John John Knoll is... Yeah, he, I think, came up with the original impetus for the story that ultimately became Rogue One. Uh, but he's a he's a visual effects guy, and then yeah, the other folks I didn't I didn't recognize. But yeah, that was the that was the episode where they talked a bunch about George Lucas, and that episode. So that was that was a week after that was a Friday after the Clone Wars finale aired, uh, and I watched that on Friday with my girlfriend, and then her and I sat down and watched the last arc of Clone Wars, all four episodes oh, kind of together. She hadn't seen Clone Wars in years and years and years, but. I will say there's that part of the episode where they talk about all the patents that Lucas. Yeah, it was like 132. It's it's pretty wild, and when you you know read the the making of Star Wars and those these original trilogy stuff, just the technology that's being created and the the push forward in filmmaking that he um, so often uh-huh. augmented and inspired is 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 very cool, and it 
sort of informed my viewing of the Clone Wars finale a little bit in that uh, the Clone Wars finale very heavily relies on droids and there's a kind of a fleet of astromech droids that kind of arguably weirdly plays a really huge role in the final episode of this show but that I think so nicely speaks to the Lucas legacy Mm -hmm. in that while Star Wars very much will point things out as mechanical monstrosities and, you know, the Death Star being this abhorrent reliance on technology and Darth Vader's suit making him more machine than man, there's also something to be said for a unity with technology. And George Lucas so often uses technology um, to aid him in telling stories, and it's it's a it's a positive relationship. It's a fulfilling relationship with technology that that helps you and uh, pushes you forward when used correctly, or you know mangles you and lessens you when used incorrectly. So Ahsoka and Rex working with those droids in that finale um, took on a new light, I guess, with, with what I was thinking about after watching that Legacy episode. And it kind of shows you that George. I mean, his real brilliance is um, his ability to capitalize and gain financially as he pushes the envelope. So he's always, I mean, he's always been obsessed with, you know, pushing things past um, what is considered, like, the norm at the time. So, Mm -hmm. like, I always loved this story of Sebulba was the most expensive animation in the world at one point. Because it was like a yep. million dollars yep. to create Sebulba and to animate Sebulba. Um, like, that just is, blows my mind. But um, mm-hmm. he pushes these things and they bear fruit. It, it, it Like, at each and every turn that he's done something, he has been able to monetize it to continue to grow and grow. Because, like, the big reason he got, like, what, four or six billion dollars from Disney was because of Lucasfilm. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, yeah. Like Pixar, that was George Lucas. Really? Like George Lucas sold Pixar. Yeah, you know, there's there's so many just insane developments in uh, in filmmaking that come from George Lucas, and it's I think um, often you'll see, you know, just the stuff that happened in the prequels and the CGI of it all, and oh, green screen, blah, blah blah blah. And I can certainly empathize with the desire to begrudge those things for their effect on a franchise you like or, or something. But I think um, it can, it can be easy to lose sight of like the tools that he developed or has overseen the development of go on to aid future generations of storytellers, you know, film, film today gets where it is by people pushing the boundaries Yesterday, you know, and, and so much of what he's done, you know, THX and Skywalker Sound. Oh, my gosh. Every, you know, have the Marvel movies. You look in the credits at Skywalker Sound. I mean, it, um, what a, yeah, a, a, yeah, a re- it's really important. A really cool thing that I, I wasn't really aware of is when Kathleen was talking. And she's the one that talked about the 192 or, you know, that high number patents. She also was talking about how when they were mm-hmm. doing Raiders, because that's when she started that they were obsessed with yes. doing something new and how they didn't add, you know, a ton new to movie making, but they, they did have some like 
progress technologically through Mm -hmm. the Indiana Jones movies, which I had never really thought of. I just thought of them separately as like, oh, these are very entertaining movies. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So. Yeah. And then, so, yeah, that was the the legacy up was was solid for sure. Um, And it again, I mean, it had that great monologue by Dave Filoni where he kind of breaks down to all the fates. And as also, you know, as much as all as excited as I was to hear, um, you know, thoughts I had had echoed, I will say I never tied it to Return of the Jedi the way he does. Uh Um, And I think that was really, yeah, that was really something. Um, The father figure of it all, I've got some issues with it. You know, he did have a mom. What, you know, um, but we we did that last episode. Really insightful. Oh, okay. Thanks. Now, Josh, if I could just interject real quick, I, as they did, oh as he was doing the recap of like episode one through episode six, it really made me wish mm-hmm. just now that you know we know that they're gonna ha- they're gonna announce whatever is the next cartoon. You know, um, they'll probably do it mm-hmm. during canceled celebration. I would imagine to like make fans feel better. Oh, God, when the heck are they going to do that? You just reminded me that they haven't done it yet. Um, I would be so excited if they gave Dave the tools to, after episode nine, Ray, like rebuilding the Jedi Order Ray. And then we kind of get his take on, you know, um, basically going through the mire of the new trilogy and then connecting those dots from episode one through nine. I, I, I mean, I have no idea what new area they're going to go. You know, um, is it going to be farther mm-hmm. past nine? Is it going to be between six and seven? Um, you know, we haven't even begun to speculate that stuff, but that would be hit, hit, seeing him with Ray and what he could do with Ray really, really excites me. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because that uh, I have two thoughts on that. One is just real quickly watching episode nine as often as I am these days, once a week for the last six freaking weeks. Uh-huh. Against night, uh, I will say I've found peace in uh, now that I'm an old man. I I guess I find myself more patient and watching episode nine. I do find myself. Uh, possessed by a sort of sense of peace that there will be an episode 10 and I will see this story continue. 100%. Uh, so you mentioning that is, is is very exciting because I just I just think about Finn and all the possibilities oh my gosh, yeah. his characters left off. And I I really just I feel a sense of confidence that I will get to I'm, see that I'm looking, uh, in the future. I'm looking forward really to seeing I mean, John Boyega is a fanboy so he's obviously going to do it. Um of episode <laughs> 10 and we're just gonna have such a significant gap from you know the two because he'll have aged mm. 20 years um and just the idea of seeing older john boyega with we'll force young, powers i mean <laughs> it's cool it's definitely uh yeah. something that is really fun to think about um looking forward to yeah and then i uh... Yeah, so on the positive side, that. On the perhaps more pessimistic side, I guess, or the more questioning side, you talk about, you know, the idea of Dave really being able to tie together one through nine and stuff like that. And I I couldn't help. You know, I made a note watching Dave talk about one through six. And I expressed on a previous episode 
um, sort of finding myself lately talking about the Lucas Star Wars versus the Disney Star Wars. Um, and I I hesitate to, I mean, this goes back to me talking about Joseph Campbell and, and him in this conversation sort of signaling out the current young generation as somehow being different or not understanding. And I don't want to fall into that, but I do mm-hmm. wonder, you know, will we, will we ever see someone, you know, the, the day of Filoni of Tomorrow... Um, presenting a discourse on the on the sequel trilogy like that, and is there enough of a? I and part of me is inclined to say no, just because it feels like pretty conclusively there wasn't a unified vision. You know, there wasn't a, a guiding hand over all of them as there was with with George Lucas. You know, and you have this sort of disjointed dialogue between J.J. Mm-hmm. Abrams and Ryan Johnson. But I'm maybe we maybe we will. I, it would be neat if we will. You know, is there is there a kid out there today who's really internalizing Rimstick the sequel boy. trilogy? Done. And, oh, perfect. Um, or Broomstick Girl, thank you very much. Uh, you know, I, and I, I have a hard time imagining that that same sort of discourse can be applied to specifically episode nine. Um, but... I mean, that's just me being old and crotchety and, and, you know, oh, I used to wear long trousers and yada yada. Who knows? But I, I, uh, I can't help but wonder. I don't know. I'll be, I'll be really curious to, you know, I look forward to having a, a, a young person explain it to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, why don't but, we get yeah. into our last, um, episode Episode, episode three, the yeah, the cast. This yeah. one just aired this morning. I think it was, well, I don't know. I liked it a lot. My So I've been, every week, my girlfriend has been getting very annoyed with me because I keep, you know, I have to, have to watch these episodes to record about them. So there is some sort of urgency for me to watch them. Uh, my girlfriend is, you know, a doctor. She's busy. She has a schedule. And so... It's like, you know, if she also wants to watch it, so I keep being like, do you want to watch this show or not? <laughs> She's like, why do you keep asking me that? Uh, but, like, after the second episode, she was like, okay, I get it. You can watch the third one without me. And I do think, you know, I think she wanted a little bit more, like, how did they do it? And less sitting around a table, which I don't blame her for. But I will say, so this third episode is the first one I watched by myself. Mm-hmm. I watched it this morning. With my uh, lovely, lovely day off cup of coffee in the morning. <laughs> oh, my goodness. No rush to finish that coffee. You can wake up whenever you want, Josh. Ugh, that day off coffee. Um, and I'll say, I think I'm going to tell her she should watch it, though. Because it was, it was very enjoyable. And um, I, every she has openly stated several times, though, every time she sees Pedro Pascal, she wants him to be Auburn Martell. Mm-hmm. And he never is, and she, she he sort of seems like a dork, and so she's always a little disappointed. But I I love Pedro Pascal, and just Gina Carano and and Carl Withers and Pedro Pascal are, yeah, they're very uh, they're very charismatic, and I particularly enjoyed the Gina Carano and Carl Withers portions of this episode. But this was a this was a really fun, um, enjoyable episode. I will say on the like rolling my eyes side of the spectrum of the making of stuff that we talked about where you get like maybe overly sentimental or you feel like you're trying to make people emotionally invested in this sort of stuff in an oogie way you know the music in the beginning calm down pump your brakes man it's a making of 
calm down. And um, secondly, there was one other thing. Gosh, oh, look, this freaking show. I just want a montage of all the shots they have that are people that are at the table that aren't talking, smiling at the mm-hmm. person that is. <laughs> it's driving me crazy. I get, okay, I get it. They respect each other. I don't need to see Dave Filoni smiling at John Favreau talking about freaking whatever. I think it's just the B-roll. Oh, it's weird. And yeah, I'm sure. I mean, you, you know, you want to give some flow to it. You don't want just like a static shot. But like, calm down, okay? Calm down with the music. Calm down with people smiling at each other. It's okay. You know. Don't overthink it. It would just be my advice of somebody who's totally unqualified to put together, you know, B-roll footage for a making of thing. But other than that, very fun episode. Also, you know, I just want to say, uh, I could probably realistically listen to um, Rick Fumiyua talk forever. <laughs> like, narrate an audiobook, man. I'm there. Yeah, I mean, he's... He has a a calming voice, for sure. Yeah, it's like, so... Now... Yeah. Just like, um, When I first started watching this show, um, you know, this show came out, Mm -hmm. like, what, early November? The Mandalorian? Uh, Yeah. So at some point I tricked my dad over, like, Christmas break to watch it with me. And I was like, oh, I haven't seen this yet. So he was like, oh, yeah. I get to see it. Uh, no, no, no. Politics. I was like, hey, there's this new live action show. Maybe you'll like it. I haven't seen it yet. So he watched mm-hmm. it more as like, oh, you know, me and my son are getting to see this thing together for the first time. And as I'm um, just clowning this clown. Um, yeah. Your dad being the clown. <laughs> he is like, are we never going to see the map like his face? And I'm like, and I'm like, no, oh, um, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, that's part of the Mandalorian. So he's like, that's not really acting. Um, and granted, like, <laughs> I was like, no, the, don't say that about Pedro, blah, blah, blah. What we find out in this episode is that he's not in that suit all that often. Um, this it's yeah, split between him and two other people. And I think I wish they had maybe gone into it further, but I think that they're hesitant to really outlay the fraction, like the ratio of when uh-huh. each person is in. But yeah, yeah, my girlfriend and I have both wondered. Like, because they, I, they, they give you a little hint in episode two when Rick is like telling an actor to just like walk in a direction. He's like, just walk straight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some actor that's not Pedro is like, what's my line? And, you know, Rick's like, just walk straight. Um, but... <laughs> That's a great Rick for me. No, he was, he was much more motherly. We just got done talking about how chill he is, and then you go, walk straight! Um, yeah, just walk straight. Um, so that was really interesting, <laughs> seeing that. It 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 was, because they, yeah, they talk about his two kind of stunt doubles, I guess, who also yeah, John uh, are a big part of, of Mando in that performance. No, it's not. Is it? Because I genuinely tried to find out <laughs> online <laughs> and then yeah, one other guy like the martial arts yeah. expert and then um, john wayne's son um 
Yeah, and so I guess on the one hand, there's a sort of a like, hey, what the heck? Is not Pedro on there all the time? But I, I would say that fooled me. Fooled you know, me. them really allowing. Well, yeah, but the, them shining a light on that and pointing out that it's not just Pedro Pascal and it is sort of a team is important because it it's part of a legacy in Star Wars of a character being more than oh, an individual. Yeah, yeah. You know, Darth Vader is so much more than. David Prowse, who's the man in the suit in the first episode. But there's also Bob Anderson, who did the fencing work in, in Empire Strikes Back and is the other uh, guy in the suit during all those sequences. And you you can't have Darth Vader without James Earl Jones. I mean, the most iconic character in Star Wars is... Uh, and, and never mind the breathing sound, which I assume is... Bember, or you know the 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 sound guy and i've heard it's a that that's just john that favreau like job of the hunt yoda ahsoka um, the the vader mm-hmm. voice is just john favreau getting really excited about food um <laughs> what's wrong with you <laughs> well i the the one thing i was going to add so i oh, okay, i think ahead. on the one hand there might be folks that are disappointed that it's like oh not pedro all the time but i mean i guess it's like you know it's not james earl jones in darth vader suit and it it again speaks to Going back to the George Lucas legacy, through the spirit of collaboration, um, and how you have to work with other people to to get your story told, and and you know, strengthen numbers and things like that. So I thought it was well, good of them to you know kind of go into how it and, is a collaboration. And that provides a good transition to the end of the episode where they talk about Cardoon and the silhouette of the Star Wars characters. Um, I think Bryce is Bryce mm-hmm. Dallas Howard was talking about that of like you. Yeah, she said Captain where, Kennedy you know, told her that. You can see from a distance, and you're like, oh, that's Obi Wan. Oh, that's Yoda. Oh, that's you know, um, you know, the Mandalorian. And with mm-hmm. those Star Wars characters, you know, it's the character that lives on. It's the character that people are getting the cartoons of that are you know imagining and all these different scenarios and stuff like that. So I thought it was really cool for them to kind of take a step back, um, humanize, you know, the characters and talk about what went into them, but then also taking into the context of pop culture and how we view these characters. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and sort of how they become canonized and mythologized. I think that, you know, the ones I will lean back, you know, James Bonds or, or Batman, you know, uh, I think now, you're like, oh, who's doing the new Batman movie? Oh, I don't like them, or I don't like that actor, or, you know. But it's like, I don't know. Read the first Batman story by, you know, Bob Kane and Bill Finger from 1930-whatever. You know, that's not the mythologized Batman. That's Batman in the first issue of Batman. You know, it's just some goober in a Batman costume. And it's it's the passing of the torch and the interpretation into the future that really... Um, you know, makes these characters larger than life. And it's the involvement of multiple people that make these characters larger than life. Um, I want to say they also, yeah, we, we, they talk about the three performers behind the Mando. They kind of talk about Pedro Pascal's physicality and his gesturing. And you mentioned it, not your dad saying it, not being acting because he's behind a mask. But I will say it made me think of um, rise of Skywalker is now on Disney plus. If you, navigate okay. the menu there 
on Rise of Skywalker, there's a part of the menu, if you open it up, that has like bonus features or additional okay, yeah, extras, extras maybe. They have the two hour, yeah, they have the two hour Skywalker Legacy documentary on there. And I think there's a, there's a snippet in there where they talk about Adam Driver uh, as much as possible not liking to work with stunt doubles because he's very protective of, you know, Kyle Ren or the physicality of Kyle Ren. And I will say that that is a perfect example of like, Kylo Ren has a defined mm-hmm. physicality, I think, and Adam Driver brings a, a physicality to that character and a posture and a way of moving. Even when he's wearing the mask in, in Force Awakens, when Rey's escaped, you know, he kind of arches his shoulders up and you, you see him getting mad and stuff. And, uh, you know, uh, there's there's a physicality to the to the Mandalorian as well, to um, Jenga Jumanji or whatever his name is. And so I think, yeah, there, there definitely is a performative aspect, even with, with the helmet on, uh, that, that should not be underwritten. Um, they definitely, yeah, he definitely still brings something to it, even if he is wearing a mask. There is a part of that where Carl Weathers is talking about acting opposite a guy in a mask. And how, you know, acting is reacting or whatever. So, you know, he's saying, you know, I'm reacting to to what's in a person's eyes. And a person's eyes betray maybe what their voice is trying to hide or their words are trying to hide. And he says, he's in a helmet. And then Favreau, kind of off to the side, goes, it's a mask. He's... You know what, man? Just like, let the guy live. It's like, yeah, the helmet's helmet's a mask. All right. Also... Um, also, this is a little bit of a behind the scenes. When they talk about Carl Weathers mm-hmm. and how they wanted him as a species, a different alien, that was all Johnny F. All right, he was like, mm-hmm. he was like, oh, it's, wouldn't it be hilarious if we get Carl Weathers and just his voice? And Dave did this thing, and this is something that you know parents do all the time with children of watching them fail so that your idea gets picked. Like, oh, yeah, you can go try and have at it. And they're never going to show the camera because he actually made his own um, prosthetics, too, of that alien. Because um, it was like... Mm-hmm. Well, it was just it was Iron, Iron Man. Man. And with, like, some lake with some lakeus because obviously weird. he loves the Twi'leks because he's a dork. Yeah, um, of course he yeah, loves so, Ryloth. <laughs> John so Ryloth Favreau. Like that, and then there's some spatulas that he had from his like um, cooking Netflix show. Um, it was honestly like Carcosa. Yeah. It was like yep. a place of nightmares. And um, <laughs> I mean, just it was it was it honestly, Dave is just this brilliant manipulator of making sure the vision's there. Um, I did really love how Dave at various points was like talking about how difficult it was directing with John and just being like, I wish I could just draw this. You know, I just want to draw this. That was brilliant. Yeah, I really like that comment. I could draw this so much faster. <laughs> oh, brother. That really does speak to uh, working within the different mediums. Also, again, you know, Mudhorn Raker Josh here. Johnny F. really likes throwing around the phrase the guild. He's like, oh, you know, we knew we knew them through the guild, or oh, we met through the guild, blah blah blah. Oh. And he always says the guild, the guild. I think, and he, in his mind, I know that he thinks if he shortens it to the guild, we'll think like, oh, the bounty hunter guild. Oh, wow, so tough. He's talking about the director's guild of America, okay? He doesn't want you to know that. 
He wants you to think it's the Tough Guy Guild, the Bounty Hunter Guild, you know, the Crocodile Hunter Guild. I'm a big tough guy. I'm very cool. It's the Director's Guild of America. Calm down with the guild talk, okay? Call DGA like everybody else, okay? Just saying. The guild. Ugh. Um, I also think it's important to point out, again, Modern Record Josh here, uh, there are... There's a scene early in this episode where Carl Withers um, is seemingly talking to John Favreau and saying, oh, I really wanted to work with you and expressing like, oh, that was a no-brainer. I wanted to work with you. Um, Carl Withers is a man who understands how things inherently are. He is not one to stand on ceremony as such for Carl Withers' interviews in this series. Uh, he in no way wanted to be around a table with John Favreau. So they did bring in Pete and I. We did sit in one seat. We actually we got rid of the seat and we did wall squats um, on the table. And we stood in for Favreau for the Carl Withers portions. Carl Withers was like, "I'm." It's like talking to a brick wall. I'm, I'm not going to talk to this guy. I'm it's, over it. it's worse than talking I'm to a man. I was at the dip fest. I know what happened. Right. So. You know, uh, when he says, I really want to work with you, he's talking to us. And we have worked with him on a fitness program. You know, he's famously, Paul Creed, uh, was very fit. You know, so we, it's just important to note, when you see Carl Weathers looking across the camera, you know, talking across the table, being very complimentary, he is talking to Pete and I. It's not a big deal. You know, we knew going in that we were stand-ins for John Favreau, but Carl's a friend of ours. We wanted him to be comfortable. We wanted the fans of Star Wars to get his valuable insight into the making of this property. So, you know, we bit the bull and we're like, yeah, okay, we'll wall squat across the table from him. It is leg day. Yeah, it's, um, it's, so um... it's kind of win-win. So I think it's just important that you know that uh, when you're watching the first three episodes of this show that John Favreau actually likes hiring very dumb people. And that Carl Withers is talking to us. And then they put John Favreau in instead with so, Movie Magic. So, listeners, um, th this is the first episode of Mudhorn Rakers. Um, you're going to be getting takes, and we're we're not going to let Johnny F. take all the credit from these hard workers, these hard executive producers, mm -hmm. actors, etc. So, from the foreseeable future, you're going to be hearing Pete... Mudraker here. And Josh, go and set the record straight. All right. That's all we're, that's all our whole goal is to mm -hmm. set the record straight. And I feel like we did that. Mudhorn Raker. Yes. Yeah. And we've got a little, I've got some more record straight that I'm going to, I'm going to have to tie it over for next week. But I will just say um, there has been a lot of news about the second season of Mandalorian coming out this week. And uh, while you definitely should be very excited for this news, also you should know that there is a little bit of manipulation going on behind the scenes on part of John Favreau and that I don't trust him as far as I can throw him in. I can actually throw him very far, but for the purposes of this, uh, you know, adage, I'm going to pretend that I can't throw him very far. But I actually could throw him super far, but I don't trust him. So anyway, um, I'll talk more on that next week. The last two thoughts I have here. First off, very impressive that Disney is able to get the rights to show parts of like Jurassic Park and all these other movies oh, really? that they do not own. Wow, wow, wow. Uh, but I think that speaks to like when I 
you know, I think of myself as as a, a young person watching these making of stuff and seeing the technology that went into it and, and the hard work and the collaboration and the teamwork that goes into making a movie and how excited that made me. And uh, I, I, I think that this show, this Disney Gallery Mandalorian thing, is something really cool. And um, I hesitate to use the word important because... It's a word I don't like to associate with pop culture often, but I think that a lot of young people might get a lot out of this. Um, and the the various allusions to other films, to other writers, to other bits of culture in this show, they talk about, you know, Kurosawa, they talk about Jurassic Park, they talk about all kinds of things, um, that that'll send a lot of young people on a, a journey of their own to discover those things and look into those things and look into how those things were made and that that's how, you know... That's how we develop a relationship with culture and, and opinions and tastes and stuff. And I think that this show has done a really cool job of, of pointing that out. You know, they show they show footage from what we do in the shadows. Oh, yeah. Yeah, movie. Yeah. Maybe that'll send people into a great movie, great show, just saying. Um, and so I think that, you know, that, that makes me excited. I really, maybe it's the legacy talk of the second episode, but it does really make me think, uh, you know, that should we be so fortunate, you know, 20 years from now, maybe we'll see um, the fruits of the labor of, of the young people that were inspired by these making of things to, to get into it. And that's pretty exciting. And then the last thing I'll say is, I'm sorry, this episode is called The Cast, and you are actually not going to talk about Werner Herzog even once? Or Excuse me? the directing episode either. Yeah! Or in the legacy episode! What is Star Wars but not the legacy of Werner Herzog? I can't even! I really thought this would be the episode where we would see film footage of him calling John Favreau a coward. <laughs> I heard the story. I want to see it with my own eyes. How are they not talking about Werner Herzog? Uh, what the heck? Pete! The last episode of this show, we've got five episodes left. I think it's an eight-episode show. What do you think? Are we going to get... I think, because the last episode of the show is going to be airing, at this rate, in July, I think, even, right? Let's see, four, five, six, seven, eight. So it'll be end, towards the end of June. June uh -huh. 19th will be the last episode. And then the second season is in October. It's just four months from from that. I gotta wonder... Are we gonna? Is that last episode there gonna give us a glimpse of oh, season two? Oh yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, from a from a who knows financial point, you you kind of want to do that. Um, mm -hmm. Next, yeah, I wonder if the trailer for season two will come out with it. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Um, so next week's episode is titled "Technology." Oh, they announced the... Okay, that's cool. Maybe they'll finally get into that um, crazy 3D room. Yeah, well, I would assume. Cool. All right, well, um, have a good one, Josh. Hey, Pete, you too. And Johnny F., kick rocks. <laughs>